Hello, and welcome to this all-new episode of Close Talking. I am your co-host, Jack Rossiter-Mumley. Last week, Connor and I talked with Dr. Hollis Robbins. She's the Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at Sonoma State University and the author of Forms of Contention, Influence, and the African-American Sonnet Tradition, just published from the University of Georgia Press. Together, we discussed the James Emanuel poem Freedom Rider Washout. Now, our conversation touched on so many different topics that there was too much for just one episode. In this special extra, Connor asks about the theme of bondage in the African-American sonnet tradition, Dr. Robbins tells a story from her time teaching at Johns Hopkins, and we all tackle the subject of GPT-3 and attempts being made to create AI programs that can write poetry. And quickly, before we get into today's episode, a reminder that if you like what we do here at Close Talking, it means the absolute world to us when you hop over to the iTunes store or Apple Podcasts, as it's referred to, and leave a rating and review. Those ratings and reviews, aside from warming our hearts as poetry podcast creators, also help boost us up the iTunes algorithm and help more people find the show. Enjoy the episode. One of the other aspects that I found so fascinating about your book is how you talk about the sort of the metaphorical trope of being helpless or being a a slave or being in bondage, Um, you know, like, and how Wordsworth, you talk about how he's like, it's great to be in bondage. Nuns fret not in their their convent's narrow room, right? Exactly. Um, And yet, for him, it's it's just a helpful metaphor and, but for, for black poets, it has obvious material and political reality. Um, And so it, it, um, you know, like black sonnets are often engaging with that trope in a much sort of deeper and more profound and complex way. Um, And I was just curious to hear you more, like hear more of that, I don't know how you're that, thinking that about that part of it. Well, it's interesting. I, I hope I hope you did read and enjoy my takedown of George Santayana at the end of <laughs> <laughs> chapter two about his his saying, you know, boy, nobody's an outcast in America anymore when he goes yeah. on about Shakespeare's outcasts on it, right? And to realize that he knew and interacted with uh, and was Du Bois's teacher at Harvard, and it's like, wait. What, what are you not paying attention to in America? And again, that's, that was both the thrilling part of, um, of writing this book is when you sort of come across the obtuseness of folks who have such a segregated view of poetry, right? And I, you know, I think I mentioned at some point King's famous statement that the most se- segregated time in America is, is 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Well, it's also, you know, the poetry section of any bookstore, right? When I used to teach a class in, in, at Hopkins at, in Black literature, at one point in time, I took my class down to Barnes and Noble because um, we were going to say like, well, we had a debate in the class, like, should there be Black literature? And this was right after Ke- Kenneth Warren's uh, famous intervention in 2015, I, I think it was, what is Black literature? Like this idea that Black literature is a Jim Crow phenomenon. Because white anthologies would not allow black literature, black literature had to grow up segregated. And now this thing that we write about, this field that I am in, 
is segregate does it still have to be segregated can't we just have poetry right and you know i divide the class into half and half that would you know take one position and you know the people who wanted one position or the other was not segregated by race there were enough black students in the class who were like no we should have one together you know <laughs> so we all walked down to the barnes and noble and uh we were standing near the kind of desk, which is not near the front, but sort of near the front. There was, and do you remember going out in the world? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, um, vaguely. I'm pretty yeah. sure I did it at one point in my yeah, life. Exactly. Well, none of us are fretting in our convent's narrow room. Anyway, I said <laughs> to this guy who was sitting there, I said, white guy, I said, uh, can you tell me where the... Um, where the poetry is, he said, you know, or where the literature is, it's all over. And I said, well, you know, and where's the, where's the African-American literature? And he said, oh, it's right there. And I said, oh, why, why do you keep it here? He said, because I got to keep an eye on it for theft. Everybody's eyes went right up like that. And, you know, they were looking as, at me as like the professor and like, like, I just didn't even know what to say at that moment. Like, Jeez. And I just said, well, I guess it's a good thing <laughs> that these books are so valuable. And frankly, you know, <laughs> you should just give them away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, and the students kind of laughed and, I, you know, what else could you say at that moment? And, wow. you know, we kind of walked back to the classroom, shaking our heads and thinking, well, you know, there's a lot of different reasons that, you know, maybe black literature segregates itself maybe the white world keeps it apart but you can't study it apart because it is in conversation in the world and just for me i i find it endlessly interesting that black poets have made so much more with the raw materials um than any other poets that i read fantastic um, is there anything else for either you or for Connor that you want to add before we wrap up? Well, I'd love to ask just briefly yeah. <laughs> about, about artificial intelligence and poetry. Because <laughs> I'm so interested in the ways that GPT-3 and these, this new language processing models in Silicon Valley um, have a lot of these, um, the tech world folks uh, trying to create poetry um, with, uh, with artificial intelligence. And I think, I don't know if either of you have any familiarity with what some of the work that they've done, but it's interesting to me because the poems that are produced in the style of Tennyson, and I think there's a website somewhere where you could look at GPT-3 poems that are written in the style of Emily Dickinson, for example. And, you know, <laughs> you give the, you give this, you give them a prompt, like of a line or two, and then it will spit out the rest of the poem in the manner of Emily Dickinson or what have you. And it's interesting to me because as much as you can kind of say, yeah, okay, it doesn't get at any of the aspects of, of layering and history and heritage and tradition and illusion and gesturing that we're getting at here. One, it's, it connects very neatly to sort of what we were just discussing in terms of, do you look at 
African-American literature is separate from the rest of literature, or is it one literature that can then be used to draw from? I think there's a very similar tension going on with a lot of how AI is put together in terms of what is being put into it for it to then begin generating from. How is it learning? And so if it learns from existing Emily Dickinson poems, that doesn't take into account the fact that when Emily Dickinson was writing those poems, she was reading very widely. She was talking to a wide variety of people. So perhaps when putting together the Emily Dickinson poem generator, you need to sprinkle in stuff from the people who she was talking to at the time and see if that informs some of its output to give it some more nuance, maybe sprinkle in some of what we know to be her favorite authors and see if that, instead of making it sound like those authors, creates a more authentic version of Techno Emily. Excellent. <laughs> I think you should consult with some of these folks <laughs> because that is actually a, uh, that is a fantastic thing. And when you, when you write about this, you should have that be a pullout quote because I think that's exactly right, speaking to the nature of inputs and then outputs. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's such an interesting, I, I still have to sort of look look more into the the idea of AI, but just our, our discussion of this poem even, you know, as you were talking about with illusions and, you know, like every word for one thing can have more than one meaning, you know, they were angry with their brother, like brother, we already talked about the several kinds of meanings that that word can have. Um, but then also, you know, like the, um, you know, the role of like, I was too weak for this holy game. And the fact that, you know, that that's sort of like a split 10, 10 line line. Um, the meat, the significance of that within a sonnet is sort of perhaps fairly readily apparent, or at least upon a few rereadings, if you're, you're versed in the sonnet tradition, but I can't imagine that, uh, the current AIs are able to sort of like pick up on the the, the nuances of lineation. Um, I don't know. That's just a, that's my hot take, I guess. All good. More poetry. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Roster Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. See you next time. Thank you.